At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. There's a growing consensus that we might actually be heading for a soft landing, but there's also one labor market trend that could be a sign of trouble. We'll tell you what it is and why our market guest says it's time to bust out the 1999 playbook. Meantime, there's just no stopping the home builders. Those stocks ripping higher again after a huge number for new homes built. People willing to pay up for pricey new homes despite higher rates. Is there anything that can stop this housing market? What you need to know if you're in the market this summer. Plus, if you're looking for a tax-free alternative to stocks, there's one area that looks attractive right now. We'll tell you what our guest says it is ahead. Before all of that, though, we got to get over to Dom Chu for these numbers. We've pulled back from that year high that we saw just late last week, Kelly, but it's markedly so. If you take a look at the picture overall, we're markedly red today, but well off the lows of the session. It's red across the board. The Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq all lower on the day, but the Dow is down about 180 points, half of 1% declines there. The S&P 500 is now below the 4,400 mark, 4,394 the last trade. They're down 15 points, roughly one-third of 1%. And for context, at the highs of the session, we were down 11 points, but down 42 at the low. So again, tilting towards the upper end of the daily trading range. And the Nasdaq has been outperforming down about one quarter of 1%, the Nasdaq composite at 13,669. One place that has been showing some real relative strength in today's market is the consumer discretionary sector. At one point, one of the only sectors in the green so far today, it's been predominantly red, as I pointed out. Amazon, Tesla, VF Corp all have positive headlines today. Amazon gets put on B of A's US1 list. That's their top picks for analysts. And Tesla, Hyundai is now looking at possibly adopting Tesla's charging standard for North America in their cars. That stock is up 3.5%, Tesla is. And VF Corp, Bracken Darrell, leaves Logitech, is now the new CEO of VF Corporation. That stock is up about 1%. And like I point out, consumer discretionary up about two-thirds of 1% overall. And then stock-wise, a couple of companies outside of the home builder trade that Kelly just mentioned. These two stocks, Amerisource Bergen, ABC, up about 11.5%. McKesson's up 10%. Both of these companies specialize in pharmaceutical distribution, medical supply distribution. Both those stocks, Kelly, get gold stars because they both hit record highs. As well as those home builders today, you can see there those stocks showing some real signs of strength in an otherwise down tape. Kel, I'll send things back over. Very surprising. Thank you for highlighting that, Dom. Thanks. Fed Chair Powell heading to Capitol Hill tomorrow for his semi-annual monetary report. This, as consensus for a soft landing, seems to be growing. Steve Leisman has the latest results from our CNBC Rapid Update. Steve? Hey, Kelly, good afternoon. Yeah, tentatively, this consensus is developing among forecasters for a soft landing in the economy. That is at least one where growth flatlines but doesn't go negative, as previously thought. The first quarter uh, coming in a bit weaker than expected uh, in March, though it, uh, from March, though it's still above 1%. The CNBC rapid update outlook for the second quarter, though, that's shaping up to be a percentage point higher than March. And instead of going negative in the second half of the year, GDP is seen going pretty much up and down around zero, but a pretty big up 
upgrade to the third quarter, at least by 0.8%. Bank of America writes, we revise in favor of a later and softer downturn. Our forecast is now as much a growth recession as it is a mild recession. Of course, zero growth is not something to be happy about, and it could imply, obviously, economic hardship, including potential job losses. And there are those who aren't buying the soft landing scenario. Among those who we surveyed, our recession probability, says TD Ameritrade, our recession probability model indicates there is an 81% probability of a recession within the next 12 months. The current market dynamic looks overly optimistic. We also asked about core PCE inflation. It's forecast to fall more slowly compared to the March survey, ending this year above 4% and next year closer to 3 than it is to 2 before aging down towards the Fed's 2% inflation target in 2025. The question is whether the Fed fulfills that median forecast of its officials and hikes twice more. And the question is whether that turns a soft landing potential into a hard one. Kelly? And Steve, I think I've been thinking a lot when you and I were talking in D.C. last week about kind of the timing of this cycle and how everything's happening, happening at different points. So the home data today, don't you think, feed right into this idea of, you know, what happens if the housing market, you know, comes strongly off the bottom or what happens if we start to see a turn in manufacturing? And, and maybe we're all hoping for a bit much here, but, you know, could that blunt the, the fall will probably at some point get from a slowing labor market? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely not synchronous throughout different industries. Uh, housing had a downturn. We don't know whether or not that's the end of it, but today's numbers were certainly surprising. And if you think about it, Kelly, industries were affected differently in the pandemic. So it makes sense that they come in and out of different uh, uh, troughs and peaks at different times. So you're, you're right to think about, well, I don't know what to do with today's housing number. It seemed off the charts in terms of uh, how, how strong it was. I don't think it's really all that strong. But it could be that it's bottomed out. There's a lot of talk about that. And manufacturing has been weak, and maybe it's going to come off the bottom just as the consumer weakens here. So all of that would sort of back up the zero idea rather than the negative idea. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Despite the calls sure. for a softer landing, the decline in hours worked could still spell trouble. My next guest sees substantial headwinds on the horizon. One is pulling out the 99-2000 playbook, the other sticking with a recession call in the back half of this year. Joining me now, Chris Harvey is head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo, and Frances Donald is here on set with me. She's chief economist and strategist at Manulife Investment Management. Am I putting your bearishness too strongly, Frances? Are you in a definite recession camp back half or just a possible one? Well, we have a 70 to 80 percent chance of a recession in the second half of this year. But even though my models tell me to do that, what I tell portfolio managers is move away from the big R word. Recession or not is not the story. The hmm. story is that we are going towards a growth slowdown. The unemployment rate is going to rise. People are going to be working less. This is not a favorable economic environment. And whether we're growing 0.1 or negative 0.1 will definitely trigger recession call or not. But it shouldn't change the way that you're looking at this economy, which is slow down ahead, problematic fundamentals that are not going to be great for risk assets. The Wall Street Journal highlighting something that Tom McClellan was on this show talking about a short while ago, which is that hours worked are contracting. Explain the significance of that. It is massive. And one of the reasons is we know because companies have told us that they're aware there's a recession ahead. Everybody knows this. The Fed is telling us there's a recession ahead. The problem is that we're still in a massive labor shortage, and that's not going to go away. So companies have said, we're going to do everything we can to cut costs in other ways. And one of the ways they're going to probably be doing that is keeping people employed so the unemployment rate might not rise as much, but we're going to see their demand declining. And we know that's another measure of labor demand. So a lot of economists are going to be moving away from traditional levels of labor demand and looking at alternative measures. This one, weekly hours worked, 
that's down. It's now at levels consistent with pre-COVID. Hmm. And as a result, the other thing we're seeing is much as hourly, average hourly earnings are higher, weekly, the amount that consumers are taking home at the end of the week is declining and moving lower. This is not a great economic environment, no matter how you slice it. And it's also significant, not just as kind of a gauge of the labor market, but itself for, let's call it nominal GDP, just like the total, the, the size of the economy. It shows some deceleration already, which we've already seen quite a bit of. Chris, you're breaking out the 99-2000 playbook. Why? So, Kelly, it's a couple reasons, right? So we had our year-end price target at 4200 we had a soft landing target at 4,400. We've sliced through both of those at this point in time. There's a tremendous amount of momentum. And what we started to look at is just the comparison between 99 and 2000 with tech, with UberCap, with technology innovation, but also with the Fed. If you go back to 99, 2000, there was another tightening cycle. But what happened was the Fed continued to tighten, but at the end, they accelerated that tightening. They went from 25 to 50. And that was the beginning of the end for the economy for old economy stocks, but ultimately it dragged down the new economy stocks. And that's really what we're looking for. And this pause is not going to get you there. So we don't think, we do think there's a pullback in the short term, but the longer term trend has not been broken. And I don't think it will be broken until the Fed gets a lot more hawkish than what it is right now. Do you think, Francis, so one of the kind of interesting things about the market narrative lately is people thinking, okay, maybe the Fed still has to hike a few more times, even as in the market today, one-year break-evens, 172, right? So they seem to be, on the one hand, betting that the Fed could be more hawkish, and on the other hand, basically saying, well, that's going to break something, or that's going to have this fallout that Chris is describing. Well, there's a lot of focus on this July meeting. My team's actually split 50-50. We're not quite sure, which is, you know, sometimes something that happens. But what really keeps us up at night is not one or two more hikes. It's what does 2024 look like? And if we're heading into a recession, and the central banks have said to us, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere. We're still concerned about a second wave of inflation. We're still concerned about asset bubbles. For the first time in my career, I'm actually saying that I don't think that central banks are going to go into easing territory. They may cut, but just to neutral. That's the real problem when it comes to how we're thinking about the Fed. Is not the next couple of months, but how do they respond to a recession? And is that playbook very different than it has been for the last several recessions? And I think that's the really big problem that we're going to see. It also means that those stock bond correlations, they may flirt positive again. Very challenging for asset allocation decisions. Good point. Chris, what would you hear from the Fed chair? We're going to hear plenty from him on Capitol Hill the next couple of days that would either tell you we're going to, we are replaying the 99-2000 playbook or maybe that something else is going to take place here. Yeah, Kelly, I'm not really sure what I want to hear from him, but, but I'll tell you what I see. I see an economy, so the way we've characterized the economy, it's an economic malaise. The economy has been stronger than people had expected, and it's taking a while, and it will continue to take a while to roll over. The job market, as we all know and I think can agree upon, is much stronger than expected. Inflation has come down, but it has not, the Fed did not break inflation. And the last thing is the equity market, which is a leading indicator, is up double digits. Why you would pause it in this kind of environment is not clear to me. And I, I think. Um, I agree with the view that it's not about whether we're going to go another 25 or 50, but it's really about are we going to go another 100 or are we going to keep rates higher a lot longer than many, many people expect. Right. And to that point, Francis, what does the housing data today tell you? The fact that, you know, as people have said, the rate hikes in some ways have been 
inflationary because it's locking everyone into their homes and forcing people into the new build market. I'm not sure if I buy that in the long run, but certainly short term, this is way more momentum than people were expecting. And here's why other countries are providing a bit of a playbook here. You know, historically, the Fed was always the first mover. Now we've seen many other major central banks that have gone a different path. What have we seen in Australia and Canada? We had central banks that said, we're done. We think inflation is coming down. And then they had data, specifically housing data, that started to come back hotter again. That's inflationary. It says the job is not done. Or worse, maybe we need to pause, but we can't let the market know this. So for me, this is going to be Chair Powell coming back after this data. This is so strong. This housing data, this is not something we can ignore. Normally, I say one data point, we don't react to it. This is a data point we have to react to. This is a central bank that's probably going to have to keep the fire of hikes alive. Whether or not they go in July probably depends on a couple more things. Wow. Francis, thank you. Chris, thank you as well. Francis Donald and Chris Harvey on these markets. Let's go overseas now to China specifically, where the central bank is slashing two key lending rates in an effort to shore up its economy as their reopening continues to disappoint. Meantime, despite President Biden saying he did a hell of a job, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China failed to reopen military to military talks between the two countries. And on top of that, the Wall Street Journal reporting China and Cuba are planning to build a new joint military training facility on the island just about 100 miles from Florida. Joining me now with more on the risks is Stephen Roach, former chair of Morgan Stanley Asia, currently a senior fellow at Yale University. Stephen, it's great to see you again. Your bearishness in January was one of the first times I really sort of sat up and took notice. And I'm curious how your thinking has evolved as we're halfway through the year now. Well, uh, thanks, Kelly. It's always good to see you. Um, you know, the, the Chinese outlook has taken a surprisingly bad turn for the, for the worse here, and the government's responding with uh, sort of the traditional playbook of uh, interest rate cuts, uh, infrastructure uh, spending, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see if it works. I think the second half will probably be, be a little bit better. But, you know, the big story and, and your bullet points you had on the screen just a second ago about the... Um, the lack of um, any breakthrough on military to military negotiations is spot on. I mean, um, you know, the Biden said the trip was good. Xi Jinping uh, sort of said roughly the same thing, if you read between the lines. But uh, the failure to really restart military to military um, uh, negotiations and discussions, I think, is a big sticking point, especially in light of the near accidents we've seen in the air and in the sea, to say nothing of the report in the Wall Street Journal on the uh, the Cuban uh, uh, gambit that China is doing with military training. And that's a worrisome uh, missing link in this uh, post-meeting climate. Do you at some point get more, you know, putting ourselves in investors' shoes here, do you get more positive on China thinking, all right, they realize the severity of the problem, they're going to start to, you know, do as much stimulus as they can, there's going to be kind of a near-term boost here, or does even that leave you feeling pretty cold? Well, I think, the, you know, there is a trade-off here between the cyclical stimulus measures that are going to be taken uh, and the ongoing uh, longer-term uh, issues that China has with respect to growth, one of which is the ongoing conflict with the United States. But, you know, China's got an aging problem. It's got a productivity problem, uh, and it's being driven more by ideology than markets right now. And so, yeah, they can get a, uh, a pretty 
uh, healthy stimulus in the second half of this year. But you got to ask yourself what comes next. And, and the, the medium to longer term issues, I think, remain very disconcerting to me. I also found it striking that one of the things they're going to do is relax the policy on buying, you know, second homes. That's what fueled a lot of these ghost cities and these very empty, you know, high-rise condos and the, in, the unsustainable infrastructure boom they were experiencing. So it seems as though they're out of ideas and just trying to go back to a playbook that we know can't work in the long run. Well, it was Xi Jinping himself who said that, you know, homes are for um, living and, and not for speculative investment. And they've made a big deal in their deleveraging campaign on uh, limiting the speculative play in uh, second uh, homes. And, and now by relaxing that, uh, you know, there's a risk they go back uh, to the old uh, debt intensive growth model that got them into trouble uh, in the first place. So, yeah, you can you can raise some legitimate uh, concerns about backtracking on that that point as well. What would make you more constructive or positive or bullish, whatever you'd want to say it about China? Would it be some kind of change in tone uh, in terms of the domestic relationship, U.S.-China, geopolitics, something to that effect? Would it be the economy? Um, what would make you feel as though, you know, feel differently than how you feel now and have for the past several months? Well, I, I think two things. If they were to really address the, the, the structural productivity issues that... Um, uh, I think stem from uh, relying too much on state-owned enterprises where productivity has always been a problem and uh, truly relaxing the regulatory restraints on uh, the private and domestic businesses, especially in the inter Internet area, that would be encouraging. And then they've got this conflict with the U.S. that I uh, think needs more than just standard uh, uh, personalization of di diplomacy, as we seem to be getting uh, right now, but really a new architecture, a new structure of engagement. I've written about that uh, in my uh, latest book, but um, there doesn't seem to be a willingness, uh, certainly from the U.S. side, to push ahead with more creative approaches to uh, re-engagement. No, even as we've seen, you know, now uh, certain Chinese watchers saying that our engagement with China was an original sin of sorts, we have to go. But what would you mean by creative engagements? Well, I've got a proposal that I call a U.S.-China Secretariat. It's a full-time organization staffed equally by Chinese and American uh, professionals, call them technocrats, if you wish, with a broad remit uh, to work on all aspects of the relationship from trade and economics to technology and innovation to human rights, climate, health, uh, and cyber, uh, complete with a dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, and they, they set them up in a neutral jurisdiction like Switzerland or wow. uh, even Singapore and let them work on this relationship full time rather than have you know, somebody like Tony Blinken fly over and, uh, you know, get a, you know, a, a perfunctory handshake in a 35-minute one-on-one meeting with Xi Jinping. That's not the way to really get this relationship back on track. That's fascinating and certainly would be a departure from where we are now. Stephen Roach, thanks for your time and for your thoughts today.
Thank you, Kelly. Good we to see you. We appreciate it. You too. Coming up, a huge beat on housing. New home construction surging in May. Applications to build also higher. And buyers seemingly getting used to this new normal of high rates. So anything can anything stop this housing market? We will debate. Look at the housing stocks. A lot of new all-time highs today. Plus, Goldman says risk on is back as investors buy the soft landing scenario. One of our guests agrees, and he's taking a page from Monty Python to look for the bright side of this market. He tells us where he's finding opportunities right now. There's one of them. Massive gains already this year, more than doubling the name ahead. As we go to break, here's a final check on the markets. Uh, Dow's down 178 points, half a percent. NASDAQ only down 12, though, and the 10-year yield just around 372. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to the exchange. Home builders, another bright spot today thanks to a blockbuster housing starts number. Is it believable? Diana Olick has the latest. Hi, Diana. Hey, Kelly. It's believable. It was in the numbers. Okay, the main number for starts was huge. Like you said, up 22% month to month, much more than expected. There was a downward revision in April, but while both single and multifamily were up, I want to focus on single family because that's where the market is desperate for supply. Single family starts up 18.5% month to month, still 6.6% lower than May of last year. Single family building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, were up a smaller 4.8% month to month, down 13% year over year. Now, both starts and permits are at the highest level since last summer. And this comes on the heels of a big jump in builder sentiment from the National Association of Home Builders, up five points in June and finally well into positive territory for the first time in nearly a year. Builders say supply chain issues are easing and demand is very strong despite higher mortgage rates. Rates were not kind in May, starting the month around 6.7%, then dropping a little bit briefly, but then rising steadily and then over 7%. But the builders say buyers are getting used to this so-called new normal. And the supply of existing homes for sale is so minimal that they have to turn to new construction if they want to buy. One interesting note in the builder sentiment report, they said builders are offering fewer incentives and lowering prices less. Apparently, they say they just don't need to anymore. Kelly? I can understand. Diana, thank you very much, Diana Olick. My next guest says new home construction has to prop up supply because inventories are back to their lowest levels since April of 2022. Andy Walden is VP of Enterprise Research Strategy at Black Knight. Andy, it's good to see you again. Welcome. 
Yeah, good to see you. Thanks, Kelly. So uh, overall, housing inventories are back to levels from last year? Yeah, absolutely. And they've dipped in 95% of markets across the country. So this is something that we're almost universally seeing across the U.S. Massive, massive inventory challenges. So fantastic news to, to see some new construction on the horizon. So a lot of people are trying to put this in larger context and say, OK, well, is the housing market, broadly speaking, inflecting, turning higher? Or are we still kind of at a, at a you know, down 35% from the highs and going to be a drag on economic activity? Do you think things overall have turned a corner here? I mean, I think they're inflecting in terms of price. Absolutely, right? We were seeing some very, very noticeable price declines late last year. They've turned higher. We saw roughly average home price growth in April, according to our Black Knight Home Price Index. So certainly from a price perspective, we've inflected. In terms of transaction volumes, I mean, demand is still down 35%, 40% from pre-pandemic levels. In recent weeks, you still have this lack of supply out there in the market. So just in terms of transaction volumes overall, we're going to continue to see some su suppressed numbers here over the over the next few quarters. And talk to me about prices. Where, where do you think we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at that annual home price growth rate, that headline number that everybody looks at, it's gone from 20% to 0%. It looks like it's, if you just look at the trend line, looks like it's going to go negative. I think it starts to inflect here over the next couple of months. I think we dip below 0% for a very, very small handful of months here, and then you start to see that trend higher. There's just not enough supply out there. Uh, so even with demand suppressed, I think you're going to continue to see prices firm up and, and trend higher here over the next few months. It seems obvious if the Fed keeps hiking rates, it's just going to exacerbate conditions in this direction. But I, I do wonder about, you know, if the market wants to price in lower rates a year from now for whatever reason, you know, economic slowdown, inflation getting back under control. If the Fed does start cutting, that seems like it could massively change the dynamics here. And that's really the the big challenge that the Fed is facing, right? Because the same lever they're pushing on to squash demand is also squashing supply. And as soon as you let off those brakes and, and let interest rates start to come down, your demand comes back. I'm not certain supply is going to come back as soon as demand, and that, that risks reheating the market. And so that's where this new build footprint and, and trending higher, that could be very good news for everybody, right? Buyers out there. Uh, builders, obviously, but maybe the Fed as well. If you can get some of that new build inventory into the market, maybe that increases supply and lets them ease a little bit. But where we're at right now, if they start to ease, you're, you're going to see markets uh, reheat. You know, there's one little story on my mind, and, and you got to tell me if this is emblematic or not. There's a great piece in, in one of the Boston newspapers about how Cape Cod rentals um, are going unfilled this summer and no one can figure out why. And if you read the article, it turns out the supply of rental homes in Cape Cod has gone from like 12,000 pre-pandemic to 16,000 as people think, great, I can get in on the Airbnb market and are charging yep. these high rates and so forth. And I wonder if there's an, something analogous to draw here about the whole U.S. housing market or not. You know, like, is, have we reached a point in which, you know, there's, we think there's too little supply, but suddenly things are going to turn and we're going to think, no, actually, there's weird dynamics going on here and, and maybe there's actually too much of it. Man, I, I hope that is the case. I don't think it is, especially when you look at some of the supply numbers across the market. But I mean, in terms of some of that rental data, it really depends on where you buy. If you bought more than two years ago, you can still cash flow that stuff really easily. It, it makes it a lot harder to find uh, enough rent revenue to make it work in today's market where you're buying at a higher price and a, a higher interest rate. So yeah. I hope you're right about supply. I, I don't see it yet, but but hopefully that's on the horizon. No, after that, I was checking out, you know, Cape Cod listings for vacation. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe if you can get a deal, still not sure we could do it. But uh, Andy, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
Andy bet, Walton you. from Black Knight. Coming up, Alibaba shares are down about 4% right now after a new, uh, news about a management shakeup. We've got the latest and what it could mean for the overall China trade, which continues to struggle. And Wall Street now seems to be betting against a lot of America's downtowns. You can guess the reasons why. But one of our guests sees some long-term opportunities amidst the carnage. We'll explain ahead. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with the index down about half a percent. We have United Health and Salesforce leading about the eight names in the green right now. Well, Boeing and Intel are your worst performers. The exchange is back after this. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Breaking the win streak that markets have been on lately as the S&P dips back below 4,400. The Dow's down 150, but that said, the Nasdaq is currently only down about six points and could turn positive. We'll keep an eye on that. And we're well off the Dow lows, which were down more than 300 points. Let's get a check on some of the names that are bucking that downturn, maybe helping us go higher. And Avis Budget Group is one of them, up 8% after Adam Jonas over at Morgan Stanley upgraded the stock to overweight. He sees a normalization of key inputs in the rental car market, expects that Avis can extract more more value per unit while also running a larger fleet compared to Hertz. Shares are up nicely on the session in response to that. ELF Beauty also higher after Bank of America reiterated its buy rating and hiked its target by $15 to $120. It's currently around $107. They're saying their increased marketing spend will lead to increased marketing share. It works out sometimes. And shelf space at major retailers like Target and Walmart could also help diversify its portfolio and customer base. About a 3.5% pop for the beauty name today. And here's one you might not be as familiar with. Atmos Filtration Technologies, ATMU. Why is it getting attention today? J.P. Morgan, Goldman, Wells, B of A, all initiating coverage on the stock. All four firms are bullish. They make commercial vehicle filtration products, and they were spun out from Cummins last month, so then now analysts can initiate on it. Shares are up about 4.5% on that bullishness. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. The uh, Coast Guard search for a missing submersible carrying five people, growing more desperate as the vessel's four-day oxygen supply is waning. Rescuers believe the Titan sub only now has about 40 hours of breathable air left after it lost communication Sunday during a mission to explore the wreck of the Titanic. Crews say it's a complex search mission that spans 6,700 square miles. Our focus is on searching with what we know. Uh, when, as soon as we received the report on Sunday evening, we immediately uh, launched search efforts. Uh, we flew assets that evening, and we've continued constant uh, surface and air asset searches uh, since that point. Parts of the South, especially across Texas, have been, during, trip, been enduring triple-digit temperatures for days now. The operator of Texas Power Grid urging residents and businesses to conserve electricity tonight to prevent outages. And Estonia became the first Central European country and ex-Soviet state 
to legalize same-sex marriage today. Parliament approved the measure in a majority vote. The law takes effect in 2024. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, the big rally in big tech, touching off concerns about the breadth of the recent market run. But in a new note, Goldman says risk appetite is back and that the sharp pro-cyclical rotation continues. On top of that, their sentiment indicators are also seeing a bullish shift. But does it all mean a top is near? We'll dive into that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are lower across the board, but just four points lower for the Nasdaq, although at the lows we were down about 1%. And Goldman is now warning that equity sentiment is at the highest level since April of 2021. They call uh, positioning stretched even as investors warm up to the idea of a hard, uh, soft landing. But my next guest points out that the mega eight stocks powering the current rally are all trading at a forward P.E. of 30 times plus. Amazon at 85, Tesla at 76, NVIDIA at 56. But he's sticking with Tesla here, I think. Let's bring in Jeff Krumpelman, chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Am I right about that, Jeff? Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I would say that you're right, that we're sticking with Tesla, and we actually came into a number of these growth stocks, including Tesla, after they had, you know, as uh, burnished as, you know, these long duration assets that were dead uh, last year, we just found wonderful entry points. And Tesla was one of those. NVIDIA, believe it or not, up 100% this year was one of them. But we think that it's so much more than just these mega eights. Uh, we, I really like the broadening that we're seeing in the market as we have pushed through May into early June. That's a really positive sign. So does it trouble you? You know, my shorthand is the the fear and greed index. That's an extreme greed zone. You know, Goldman's is a little fancier, and they say we're at, you know, stretched levels of equity sentiment, highest since April of 2021. Are we broadening, or are we just getting to the point where everyone's firmly in the bullish camp and we're about to reverse the other way? Yeah, I, I, we are not. Uh, everyone's in the bullish camp. I think that if we look at the various readings, you know, we're kind of uh, we've definitely moved from uh, uber negative, uber bearish uh, to more positive. But we're not so positive that it's a contrarian negative, you know, like you're suggesting. I think that we're kind of neutral across all areas. We're neutral on fundamentals. We're neutral on valuation. And yeah, you can talk about the mega A trading at 30 times, but the rest of the market's trading at 15 times. And I'd rather see 492 stocks trading at 15 times and a couple of them overvalued than the other way around. And then on the technical front, this broadening, I do think, is is what we really needed to see. And it's not to say we're all clear and that this is just a rocket ship now to you know 5,000 or something, but we do think that our thesis of Stay sober, stay measured, 4,500 plus by year end with plenty of volatility in between. But keep your eye on the prize, which is we're getting less worse on inflation. We're in the eighth or ninth inning of Fed rate hikes. And you know what? Earnings in the economy just ain't all that bad. And that should play out, I think. Yeah. Rather nicely, rather than Uber negative. If people don't have a strong enough stomach for Tesla or, you know, uh, Carnival, for instance, some of those names in consumer discretionary, a couple of the names in industrials you like were mentioned at the Ben Graham CFA conference I was at this morning, Eaton, United Rentals. I mean, these are a lot of people feel like the industrials are overlooked. And I'm curious if you feel the same way. I absolutely feel the same way, Kelly. And you've seen that in, in a big way in the last 
uh, month or so where the industrials have really made a nice push. I mean, United Rentals gone from 300 to 400 in you know several weeks. Wow. And I think what's happening there is that um, a, a really underappreciated catalyst for this economy, rather than just having a normal boom-bust cycle, we may have rolling recessions in various sectors, but not all at once. And on the capital spending front, these infrastructure bills, the, the uh, CHIPS bill, um, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a spending bill, um, it, it really drives uh, re-onshoring in the U.S. I live in Cincinnati here, and we're, we're spending $3.5 billion on a bridge that we've been trying to do for 20 years, hmm. and folks are sick and tired of thinking we may fall into the Ohio River. Um, it, we're finally going to build that. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's getting construction employment to all-time highs, and I think that's really underappreciated. Also a fan of Vulcan, and I think we all looked to what happened with the Pennsylvania Bridge rebuild and went, wow. I mean, the infrastructure stocks today are absolutely taking off. So I like the... This is Steve Leesman. I've been talking about this and to hear you weigh in on it is fascinating as well. This idea of rolling recessions and, and kind of in a way rolling recoveries. Jeff, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kel. Jeff Krempelman with Mariner Wealth. When we meet again, may we all be carefree. That's how Alibaba's outgoing CEO signed his memo to staff, announcing he'll be focusing on the cloud business as part of their restructuring plan. Baba shares down more than 4% on these developments. We'll dig into the leadership changes and the future of this Chinese conglomerate right after this. Welcome back. Alibaba out with a surprise leadership shakeup today. CEO and Chairman Daniel Zhang will step down from those roles and instead focus on the company's cloud business. Shares of the Internet giant down about four and a half percent. Let's turn to Deirdre Bosa with today's Tech Check. Maybe unpack the significance of this for us. Deirdre? Yeah. So, Kelly, if I was to point to one thing, I think that What's important about this announcement is that two Jack Ma insiders are going to be taking over the collective company after the split up happens. Remember, the company's breaking into six different businesses. They are Joe Tsai and Eddie Wu. Joe Tsai is the more international facing executive who, of course, owns the Brooklyn Nets, and he's going to be the incoming chairman. Eddie Wu is going to be the incoming CEO. So largely, they're going to be looking after the e-commerce side of the business. Um, and it's notable, I, we haven't spent enough time talking about Daniel Zhang himself. He took over from Jack Ma um, years ago, and he's going to be heading up the cloud unit, which in some ways, Kelly, could be more significant because this is where the artificial intelligence generative AI drive is going to be taking place. So while you could look at this as a bit of a demotion for him, he's actually taking up maybe the most sexy parts of the business as it all splits up. And Alibaba, we are watching, I guess, is it deconglomerizing? Is that a word? Or um, <laughs> give us some context here around some of the, the shakeups they're, they're under. I guess that is a word. It's splitting up, deconglomerizing. Um, it's not easy to say, but that, that is accurate, Kelly. Um, remember, this has been one of the biggest, most successful Chinese companies. A few years ago, when Jack Ma was trying to take affiliate ant group, that was a fintech company, public, got smacked down by regulators. He essentially had to go into hiding. Alibaba came under so much pressure as well, just being affiliated with Jack Ma, um, losing hundreds of billions of dollars in market value um, since, since that time. So it's been a under this pressure, under this regulatory pressure from Beijing. So maybe this is a signal. The fact that it is Joe Tsai and Eddie Wu taking over, and these are Jack Ma confidence, maybe tells us that that's in the rearview mirror. However, there are challenges ahead. 
Over the last few years, while Alibaba's been under pressure, another Chinese rival, Pinduoduo, you might know, or our audience might know, it's Timu app that's here in the U.S., has made a lot of strides. Um, still not as big as Alibaba in terms of its market capitalization. However, it has had a lot of success here, especially this in, in this environment when consumers are looking for cheaper priced goods. So there's this thinking maybe with Joe Tsai, an international executive at the front of the e-commerce or as chairman of the e-commerce unit too, that maybe they'll make more of a push internationally into the U.S. They're already in plenty of places outside of China. Good point. If anything, it's been kind of too long already uh, in that effort. Deirdre, thanks. We appreciate it. Our Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, the hybrid work model, not just a problem for office REITs. The Wall Street Journal reporting investments linked to America's downtowns like muni bonds are now under pressure. But is the time to scoop them up at a discount actually this very moment? We'll explore that next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month by sharing stories of corporate leaders. Here is GLAAD president and CEO Sarah Kate Ellis. Coming out for me at work helped surge my career. I wasn't hiding who I was. That takes an extraordinary amount of energy and time and resource that you could be putting against your career, your job, your clients, your employees. And so for me, when I was in the magazine business and I finally came out, I saw my career take off. So be who you are. Bring your full self to work. It will only make your career even better. Welcome back. According to a new piece in the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street is betting against America's downtowns. From floundering office REITs to cheaper public transportation bonds, the post-COVID landscape has created weakness in these once stalwart investments. But my next guest sees some long-term opportunities, and she's adding duration to her muni portfolio, fearless. Joining me here on set is Nisha Patel, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Parametric. Nisha, it's great to see you again. Good to be here. This is quite a headline. Yes. Is it a lot of downtowns, just the most obviously challenged ones? What's going on here? I think it's a combination of both, right? So you do have the challenge downtowns that are always going to have a little bit of extra scrutiny, especially as we head into a recessionary environment. But I think the major headlines around the larger cities, especially in a post-pandemic world, where you are seeing less tenants in office buildings, so San Francisco comes to top of mind, New York City comes to top of mind, these are major and newer headlines. Now, I will say that while credit due diligence is warranted, when you look at the office space tax collections as a percentage of overall property tax collections for these major cities, it's a fairly small percentage, hmm. right? So when you're talking about San Francisco issuing muni bonds, maybe 40% of their bonds come from taxes, but that's a combination of all property taxes. There's a much smaller significance, probably close to around 7 to 8% only, that comes from office and, and actual office building taxes. Those are good data points because I think we can all say San Francisco's uniquely challenged where they're probably facing revenue problems on, on many fronts, yes. maybe office at the core, but many, many. We've right. seen the retail, you know, retailers yes. leaving and people. Whereas other cities, it seems to be more, more just a question of empty office buildings. And, right. You know, so it's funny because... You almost wonder, like we've we've heard officials say, you know, it's almost like it's good for America, it's good for these cities to to bring employees back to the office. But the data just seems stubborn that that's not going to happen in a much more meaningful way beyond what we're seeing today. I 
I would agree, right? Like post-pandemic, we just cannot get back to probably pre-pandemic office occupancy level, right? You've had massive industry shift. You've had companies shift to more of this hybrid model. So it's hard to envision a place where we're going to go back to the pre-pandemic occupancy levels. Now, cities will have to get more creative and will have to diversify their revenue streams a little bit more, again, if they're depending upon these types of revenue streams. I will say that post-2008, as many of these cities and issuers learn the hard way, they have adapted to it and have vastly diversified their revenue streams today, mm -hmm. right, to, to versus where they were in 2008. But no doubt there's going to be challenges as we hit kind of a soft landing, a recessionary period, they're going to have to tighten their belts, right, as, as they always have had to. So possibly look into the reserve levels, uh, make the appropriate expense cuts, uh, look to re raise revenues in other ways. These are all things that cities and states have to do in any kind of economic downturn. And we're showing Philadelphia, Atlanta, Boston. I mean, these are some of the places that are still below 50 percent uh, of activity downtown pre-COVID. So what's the investor angle here? Do you take kind of some of the distress levels where you might get high yield and you can be really tactical about how to thread that needle in these downtown places? Or do you go where the money in the population has been going, i.e. more to the suburbs or just to different areas like that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both, right? I do think in this environment, we do want to be stressing on higher quality credits. Uh, I do think that some of these occupancy levels and some of these trends are not going to be going away. Now, if you do see a pocket of opportunity to where you see spreads widen out and there's a very attractive level to where you're saying, you know what, this is too cheap relative to where we're viewing or relative to kind of where we think this is a, a great bond, let's look to buy this. That could be a good entry point. But I would say in general, from our philosophy standpoint, especially as we enter a recessionary environment, we are much more favoring the higher quality type of, of, of bonds. Now, San Francisco is a good example, right? AAA rated generally from external rating agencies. It is still AAA rated. Uh, AAA, AA. Um, but internally, let's just say if you have viewpoint, uh, and that's based upon property tax collections are very high. Think about the median uh, property values, right? It's about four to five times the median of what you might need for a AAA credit. So these are very, very high property assessments, property values, and hence the property tax collections coming in uh, pretty significantly. That's very different than offer office tax collections, which again, I mentioned was fairly low. But that doesn't mean that we may not internally evaluate this to be closer to, let's say, a double A credit or maybe a single A credit. So there, it's more about than assessing what's our internal view on that and are you getting paid the appropriate price for Any that? other areas where you see, you know, opportunity right now that you think people should be kind of, you know, again, I like this idea of, of kind of walking this fine line between yes. conditions might be a little bit worse, but there might be, you know, hey, we didn't realize that this could this funding source should be okay. Well, I would say the exciting story right now in general is that muni bonds are, let's say, up for a, a fantastic sale or flash sale, as we call it. So even if you stick to high quality bonds, the, the great ones, the local school districts, the essential water sewer systems, we're seeing an opportunity to lock in about 3% plus over 3% tax-free yields, which on a taxable equivalent basis is right 55 to 6%. For New York City, California clients, you're looking at about 7% taxable equivalent yields, which is pretty phenomenal to be able to lock in. So rather than thinking short-term, where there's a very high reinvestment risk, right? I mean, treasury bills, yes, could look very attractive, but that reinvestment risk is significant. Why not go out a little bit longer lock in those yields, and then additionally, we like adding duration in today's portfolio, right? Towards the end of the, the Fed tightening cycle, I think there's a significant upside yeah. um, for bonds particularly. No, a great point, especially for investors who maybe did that six month, maybe that one year on the T-bill and know, yes. okay, well, what am I going to do next yes. time around? 
Here's an, an alternative. Nisha, thanks. We appreciate it. Good to have you, you here as well. Here. Nisha Patel joining me from Parametric. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. For more analysis on markets and the economy, maybe munis, you never know, sign up for my newsletter in one easy step, cnbc.com slash newsletters, or just scan that QR code. Next on Power Lunch, maybe you've heard of the lipstick index, the cardboard box indicator, the hemline one, I think. There's a shrimp indicator as well. The CEO of Omni Hotels and Resorts will tell us what seafood sales reveal about the economy. Tyler's can't wait. I'll join him on the other side of this break. (laughs) You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.